Hello and welcome to The OT Life, a careers podcast from the OTs of Signet Healthcare. I'm Emma Crowcroft. I'm one of the Regional Directors of Occupational Therapy here at Signet. I'm delighted to welcome you to the third episode of our podcast. We created The OT Life for OTs around the country who are interested in hearing from people who share the same passion for occupational therapy. We chat all things OT from our opinions about the profession, our role in health and social care, stories and real experiences and career advice. This is the place to help you make the most of the profession you love. Let's get going with the OT life. So thank you for joining us. In today's podcast, we're talking about models of care and we're joined by Katie Condliffe and Kerry Booth. If you'd like to just introduce yourselves. Katie, do you want to start and tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Yep, certainly. Thanks, Emma. Hi, my name's Katie Condliffe and I am the head of occupational therapy at Joyce Parker Hospital, which is our child and adolescent mental health hospital based in the Midlands. I'm also the clinical lead occupational therapist for our child and adolescent mental health services and our eating disorders service line. Thanks, Katie. And Kerry? Hi, I'm Kerry. So I'm the lead occupational therapist at Signet Sheffield. Um, I've been with the company for about 15 years so I've recently moved to Sheffield so I'm overseeing the CAMS ward and the low secure female ward and previous to that I was in the high dependency rehab ward um, at Aspen House. Thanks Kerry. So what we wanted to talk about today was models of care um, and I guess the first thing to think about is why do we need models of care? Do you want to kick us off Kerry thinking about why they're important? Yeah I I think they're super important because as an occupational therapist, it's a very visual tool that we use. Um, it's something great that service users can see. It's something that the commissioners can use as well and the externals. Um, and I just think it's good so when the patient first comes to the service, you can see from week one till the end what's going to you know, be going along during the way. So obviously we'll start with like the pre-admission area. We'll go into the assessments and then we progress on to the goals and the discharge plan. Lovely. I suppose thinking about the occupational therapy process as a whole, our models of care kind of tell us where as practitioners we should be aiming to be at any one time. But also, if I was a, a I'm going to use CAMS because that's sort of my background. If I was a young person or a parent and, um, you know, a young person came into our service and I, I met with an occupational therapist, which might be the first time that I've met with an occupational therapist, and I wanted to know what to expect, what can this OT offer me, then a model of care is going to help me to understand where the what the assessment looks like. Is it going to be a scary, really interview-based assessment or might there be other things involved? Um, what can I expect in terms of what I'm going to receive treatment-wise from the occupational therapy team? All of our models of care also have rough timelines assigned to them as well, depending on your... Um, depending on your service line and the length of stay. So... Roughly, you should know where you're going to be at any point in the process. Um, and I think a model of care helps a parent to understand what the occupational therapy team can offer them, helps our patients to understand kind of the process through their admission, what they should um, be expecting. But also for us as occupational therapists, it helps to guide our practice and actually helps us to set out um, in terms of kind of like the longer term treatment goals and outcomes, what we should be aiming for I suppose the other benefit of a model of care is thinking about outcome measures how do we know that what we're doing as occupational therapists is working absolutely could you tell us a little bit about 
your experience with the models of care while you've been at Signet and how you've been involved with designing them? Yeah. Um, so as a clinical lead for the um, CAMS service, um, I suppose over the past two years, we've been really refining what our models of care look like. Now, we have three different service lines within CAMS. We have a general adolescent service line, psychiatric intensive care service line and a low secure service line. And all of those are kind of different lengths of stay. So you might be looking at 12 weeks if you're on the general adolescent ward, eight weeks on a psychiatric intensive care ward and about a year on a low secure ward. That doesn't mean that you're going to have the same experience on all of those wards. You, when somebody is admitted, kind of the remit of treatment on that ward is different. So as an OT team, we had to sit down and really think about what kind of assessments are we going to use? Where's the evidence base in CAMS to make sure that we've got the most appropriate assessment in CAMS? What's our treatment pathway going to look like? How are the young people going to know what to expect from us? It might be that if you come... If you came to our psychiatric intensive care unit, for example, you're likely to be very, very poorly when you're first admitted. So it actually might not be that the first thing you do is walk into an assessment with an occupational therapist. It might be much more about gathering informal observations. But actually, over those eight weeks, you should know what we offer to you as a team. It looks, it, They look slightly different. So we went away as a service line. We kind of sat down and we said, OK, what do we offer now? And it varied a little bit from site to site. But what should we be offering? So what's the evidence base? What does that look like nationally? What are the national drivers? How do we encompass this in a model for each each of our wards, each of our service lines? We kind of formed a few working groups and came back with some ideas. And very slowly, we have kind of crafted it into a finely, <laughs> finely honed and finely tuned model of care. And then via the CAMS clinical steering group, that now slots into our overall models of care per service line. So can you tell us about what you did to make sure that that fit in with the rest of the model and the, the models that were used by other disciplines to make that overarching model for the CAMS service? So we, we well, as the clinical steering group is made up of a lead from each profession, um, so myself, the lead for psychology, the lead for the medics but we have representatives from each site as well so we kind of looked at okay so we we roughly have a time scale although depending on your need they can vary a little bit so what you know what phase for example would you assume that somebody who came into an intensive care unit where would we see assessment taking place or how would we see it taking place and it's really the same for whether it be OT or psychology that because if you're really really poorly when you come in it's not going to be that you'll be able to sit down and engage with us. So how do we get that quantitative information? What are the expectations on timelines? We have to tie in with what the commissioner's expectations are, but also work with community teams. So we pulled together all of our individual models of care and then crafted um, kind of the CAMS-wide clinical model. And they all, they all do look slightly different depending on what ward you, you kind of... Um, admitted to um, with our treatment phases I suppose being the most significant and we now have crafted a sort of three-phase admission so you have the admission section the treatment and then the discharge transition out se section so at any one time I could sit with a young person and say 
regardless of whether it is the OT department or whether it's the whole service, this is where you are. You are in the treatment phase. This is what we are working on. You can sit with a parent and say the same thing. And in by this time, we would expect you to be in the discharge transition pathway. Now, that's not perfect and it's not the same for everybody, but roughly everybody should have an idea of where they are. And I think that's important because my experience historically, um, and I know I've got friends who work you know, in other places, is if you don't have a really well-defined model of care, it almost drifts and becomes this kind of open-ended process where realistically I could work on 10 things with one patient but if I have eight weeks I've got to prioritize and collaborate and work on the most important because if it drifts how is that therapeutic for the patient I don't know if you'd agree Kerry yeah absolutely um because I think obviously I've worked more in the adult services as you're in CAMS um and it's the same sort of principle of it's very much a collaborative approach from all of the MDT um I know when I was on the high dependency steering group with yourself Emma and I know it came when it came to the service where I was working at a time that we kind of brought it into um, ward round discussions. And obviously we've got the, da- um, the doctors, the psychologists, the nurses. And I think um, it was just something that was able to, so you could discuss it with the rest of your team and they could see where each discipline was at and what their goals were working. And like Katie was saying that it may sometimes, the patient doesn't necessarily fit in that box at that time, but it's where they're moving to. And so they can see and the rest of the team can see, because obviously as OTs, people often say, what do you do? <laughs> um, but it's great because it, it's there in writing, it's there visually, and you've got it up in your ward round. You've got, like you say, the family members and relations are coming in and they're able to see and discuss and kind of go with the co- care plans with it and goals. So could you could you tell us maybe about your experiences of how you've not only taken what has to be an overarching generic model and made it individualised for that person, but about then how you've worked with them so that they really understand where they're at and where they're going next. You can adapt it quite well, can't you? Because I know, obviously, for the for Signet, we tend to use the MOHO model. Um, but I know I've, I think I've discussed it with yourself, Katie, about using the COWA model. So sometimes being a bit more visual and putting, you know, it on paper. So, uh, like... It's worked better with the younger patients that we've had or patients that have got a learning disability to so kind of put it out on paper, say, right, this is where we want to go. And it may not be, you know, the usual Cower River Mall. It could be that you could do it as a a road with the traffic lights and the roundabouts and just so they can see themselves what goal they're going to go to and what boundaries might, not boundaries, boulders might be in the way. Um, and just to o- out, overcome that. And it's just making adaptions, which is something that we're good at doing. Absolutely. I've, well, as a team, I'm not going to claim it all for myself, but as a team, we've worked in ward rounds with patients to kind of, and often we draw it out for them so they can quite clearly see where they are on their pathway, but we've tied it in with, I I mean, I think it's incredibly helpful for parents and carers and those involved with patients as well, but we've tied it in with kind of other outcome measures that we have in our service, like the progression scores, um, to say, do you know what, when you first came in, you were here, but... Look at look at how, you know, how much change and progress there has been because we've worked on these goals. And I think having it visually is really useful for them. And I know part of what we want to do as a CAMS um, service as a whole is create, although, is create visual pathways in all of the wards, <laughs> in all of the services, in the corridors, for what that looks like. Um, I think it's really important to have those markers and acknowledge that because... 
I think, as I said before, one of my biggest bugbears is when therapy becomes just an open-ended therapy. And I think that tends to happen if somebody's with you longer as well, that you might, you know, if you have somebody, say, on your ward for 18 months, I mean, in some of our services, people stay for longer, that it can be a real difficulty to kind of shape or outline what those goals are that you're working on and that's really important in terms of intervention and treatment is it is a collaborative but b we have to mark when somebody's achieved something it's not like we can do a year of cooking sessions with you know cooking sessions are very intricate things and you know there's a huge amount of skill development in them but sometimes it's just a year of cooking sessions and that's not why somebody is with you it's around specific development of specific skills and any intervention that we use needs to be measurable. We need to know that somebody's making progress and if they're not, then it's not the right intervention that we're using or we, we might not be focusing on the right thing. And I think sometimes it's worth acknowledging as well that like, because we've had service users, they've been there 18 months and they're, they're stuck in the first stage because they can't, they're not independent in the areas that we want. So it's accepting like, again, like you were saying, how you adapt it. So this patient isn't going to live independently in the community, but they're going to go to step-down housing where they'll need support. So how do we put that in place? What sort of interventions do they need so they can, you know, do a basic meal like beans on toast or something that we're not asking for a three-course meal? What about your experiences implementing the models with the staff team? How do you ensure that other disciplines um, and thinking about support staff and nursing and the rest of the MDT all understand how that model looks, know how it operates, what they need to do to support that development. How have you worked with other staff members? I think it's come up in our ward rounds where we've discussed it and like morning meetings where obviously the plans come in place now, we've all got the nice posters that we put up around the unit. Um, and as a team, we've kind of discussed individual patients where we feel they are and what, what stage they're going and what areas they need to do. Um, I think it's always a challenge, to be yeah. fair, because I think the easiest buy-in is from your other MDT members, because we've all got a rough model of, you know, we haven't, it's not rough, it's finely, finely crafted now. We've all got a model of what we need, you know, to be achieving at any stage. I think the harder kind of sell, as it were, is to the staff on the floor to help them to understand why you're doing what you're doing, why you've chosen a particular intervention, what that means for somebody, because often it can be really hard when you're kind of working with somebody day in, day out, to have, have that longer view, I, I suppose, of what you're hoping to achieve with them. And I think that comes through like making it visible, talking about it in terms of you as an OT, this is what we're aiming, Keep, you know, keeping it current and keeping it in conversation. And they're key to the model being effective, aren't they? Yeah. You know, we really need yeah. all of those staff to be able to follow that through and work with us to get it right. Exactly. It doesn't matter how wonderful you are as an occupational therapist. We have a, you know, we have a wider system that works with the patient. If I spend one hour a week with a patient, it doesn't matter how great my session is, there's another, I can't even work out the number of hours in the week that, you know, they're going to spend with staff on the floor. So it has to be a systemic approach as well as just an OT approach so they need to understand why we're saying do you know what we want to focus on doing this with somebody in this particular way this is how we've this is why we've written this step-by-step approach this is to help develop this skill and it's only by getting their buy-in that it's going to be effective and you're going to be able to drive that forward so I think it is about keeping the conversation current I think we have great markers in ward rounds but you know you can do that 
you can keep it current with the staff through reflective practice that we run on the ward, through staff team meetings. I don't know if you've got any... Yeah, like you're saying there, I think they're the sort of things we've done and we've done like training on the ward as well. So like, again, it could be tea formulations, it could be psychology formulations that we kind of do all the, this is the individual, what are we working towards? Um, but I think you where you were saying there about the cooking, something that I found really useful was I put, um, it was like a, a chart on the ward and it was like, what's in a cooking session? And it was all the different elements around it. So we're not just wanting the end product. We want in the communication, we want in the sequencing, we want in the planning, we want in the budgeting. We're wanting to see if they can problem solve. And it's all those things that, as OTs, I think we take for granted that when we see, we just look for those things. But it's teaching our colleagues to see the same. One of the things we talked about in a different episode was about um, understanding of OT, what OT is, the OT process. Um, And I think the things you describe in there, Kerry, that sounds like that's really helped to get that message across to all the members of staff. Do you think there's been a a change in that understanding within your unit since you've been using the models? I think there certainly was, um, because before I think you'd get almost the conversation of they take two hours to cook. Yeah, but that's two hours of valuable time. And what are they learning in that time? Like, they may only be doing a basic pasta dish, but if it takes two hours, great. They're, They're doing it and they're learning so many new skills. And I think with that on board that the staff team was starting to see there is more to it than this and this is the reason why we're here they're not just here for like a stopgap they're here to learn new things and skills and we're going to get them out with those in the back pocket i guess sometimes a cooking session is more than just a cooking session isn't it at the end of the day um i think as well for staff teams it can be so easy sometimes when you're on a busy ward to kind of do for others and in terms of you know, if somebody's struggling to do the laundry, you might give them a... And I, f- I find this myself sometimes. If a, if a session's taking two hours, I'll be kind of thinking, if I could just lend a hand and just speed things along and know you're the OT, you know, you're doing the skill development. Sometimes it can be easier to do for others, mm-hmm. but actually the benefit is in sitting back and letting somebody kind of find their way through, problem solve for themselves. You give the amount of support that they need. That can be really really hard I think um to kind of do on a daily basis which is why it's really important to understand what is in a particular session like your cooking session Mm. and outlining what skills are used in a in a cooking session something I think we take for granted if we're able to do something independently Yeah. yeah okay that probably is time to wrap things up for today uh thank you so much for sharing really thought-provoking interesting conversation thank you katie and kerry thanks for listening to the ot life we're a new podcast for ot's so share the love by subscribing for future episodes and don't forget to share it with other ot's bye for now